Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Before we begin, I do, man, I really appreciate our worship team, uh, the time that they put in um, to lead us in worship. Uh, I do want to call out my Sunday school class real quick. So we have a Sunday school class before the service, and we go over the passage together. And it's, I would, if you haven't been there, I would encourage you to come because um, I think it's, at least for me, it's a blast. I love it because we get to wrestle with the text together and we come up with all these crazy ideas and, and these thoughts and, and, we, and we glean from one another because we're wrestling with the text. And, um, and I think it's helpful when we come into here because I wanted to ask my Sunday school class this morning, did you guys notice the different themes that we were singing this morning and how they applied to our passage. And I'm not just talking about, I mean, one was obvious about the storms, right? Because we're going to be talking about Jesus walking on water in the sea. And so there's that phrase of calming the storm, but there's other themes as well. And so if you think through some of those songs about fear uh, thank you for bringing it up, Evie, because Evie was in the Sunday school class. So, I mean, the, these, and, and I didn't, I don't know if I had this title up when I sent it to Devin, but the fear and the doubts that come within this passage, those are things that we sang about this morning, but we also sang about faith. And these are very important themes that not only are we going to be singing about, but we're going, to be, we're going to find in this passage that we're looking at. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 14, this is our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. I would encourage you, you know, open your Bibles, but I also encourage you, you know, on, on the back of your worship guide, uh, there's a space to take notes. So if you have a pen, I would just encourage you, you can jot down some of these references and maybe some of these scenes that we'll be going through. Um, sometimes just writing them down is, is helpful to, to concentrate and to, uh, to engage with the word. So what we're looking at is a very interesting account. It's an interesting event because we normally see Jesus doing miraculous works. Of course, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's even raising the dead. But this one is a little bit different. We're talking about Jesus walking on top of water. That's something we don't normally see, right? Uh, I remember uh, many, uh, a long time ago, this is kind of early stages of like YouTube, I remember watching a video and it was funny where it was these guys and they're trying to run across the water as far as they can with, before they fall in, right? And so the guy starts running and he takes like one step and falls in. And then he, he, he tries to go faster and then he actually takes two steps. You're like, whoa, he was able to get two steps off before he falls in the water. And then like three and then like four. And, and it got to the point where you're just kind of like, 
Uh, how in the world is he doing this? And then it, it, basically it's an ad for shoes, like water resistant shoes. You know, at the end, he's like, oh, these shoes or whatever. And sadly, back in those days, how naive I was, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I should try that and see if I can do that. Well, of course, it was a it was a hoax, right? It was fake. They had plexiglass underneath the water, just inches up, you know, underneath the water. So you couldn't see it. But of course, that's what they were doing to run across the water. But anyways, the point is, is, okay, natural law tells us that human beings cannot just stand on water. But here, Jesus is defying natural law. This is a little bit different than what we've seen before. And what's interesting is, is he is doing this miraculous work, not in front of crowds, because that's what he was doing with the healing and the raising of the dead. It was, it was in front of all these people, but it's just in front of the disciples. And it's interesting how the disciples respond. You see, G, they, they, they see Jesus in a new light. And I think that's really interesting. And that's what we definitely want to key in on as we walk through this passage. So notice how the disciples respond when they see this miraculous work. Now, before we read this passage, though, and get into it, let me give you a little bit of review, a little bit of context. It's really important because this story is embedded in a variety of stories, and they all have some similar theme. And so we really need to understand what this theme is as we're reading this specific narrative. So throughout the gospel of Matthew, we see that there is opposition building throughout Jesus's ministry. We find in chapter 13, to, it gets to such an extent that Jesus is now concealing his message to the people by teaching in parables. So he's going out to the crowd, to the people, to the Pharisees, to the just the people in general, and he's teaching in parables and he's concealing these truths. But then later we see that he is revealing them to his disciples, those who he has called, those who are following him. He is revealing these truths. And what's interesting is in chapter 13 and is at the very end, he gives a parable specifically to the disciples. And that parable is basically telling the disciples what I'm what I'm telling you now in secret, what I'm telling you in the dark, you go out and you confess and you proclaim to the people. So right now I am concealing it to them, but later you're going to reveal it to them. So this kind of sets us up getting into chapter 14. So chapter 13 is all these parables and, and he's concealing, and, but he's also revealing to the disciples. And that brings us into chapter 14, where we see him serving the crowd. And at some point, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, where the people question how he is able to do these mighty works. He's like, wait a minute, we know this guy. We know his family. This is the carpenter's son. How in the world is he able to do these things? And And the passage, Matthew tells us that they actually take offense to him. They take offense. And it says that Jesus doesn't do mighty works before them because of their offense by him. 
So, and it's at that time also that Herod hears about the fame of Jesus and, and thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He's saying, okay, here's this man doing these mighty works. Um, is this John the Baptist coming back to haunt me? <laughs> because, right, it was Herod that killed John the Baptist. So there's, the, the, the point is, is this, is that there's people that are still confused about who Jesus is. So if you go back even some previous chapters, we see some of the crowd questioning if he's the son of David. They're like, wait a minute, there's something here about this guy. Is he the son of David? The Pharisees go, no, he's doing these works by the power of Beelzebub. So he's a servant of Satan. So is he the son of David? Is he a servant of, Sa of, of Satan? Is he, is he just a carpenter's son? Is he just the resurrected John the Baptist? Later, we're going to hear maybe some other accounts of maybe he's just a prophet from old. In our story today, we're going to see a different conclusion, a different response from the disciples. It's, you know what? Truly, this is the Son of God. This is going to be the first time we see the disciples specifically give recognition to who Jesus really is. And so with that, let's read this narrative together. If uh, out of honor of the word, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me? I'm going to read this passage. And if you would like to follow along, this is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by, his, by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt and when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment 
and as many as touched it were made well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. You would move through your spirit and give us your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, so I've broken this narrative down into four different scenes. So scene number one, that Jesus makes time with his father. Jesus makes time with his father. This is verses 22 through 23. So if you think back to the previous section, it was the narrative about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus sends his disciples off and dismisses the crowds and he's finally able to spend time with the father. So remember, this was the reason why Jesus went out into the wilderness in the first place. He was trying to find some space. He's been serving the people uh, he heard about what happened to John the Baptist. And so this was a time for him to get away, um, to spend time with the Lord, to recharge, to perhaps mourn over the loss of John. And this crowd follows him. And so it's like, oh, my plans, my plans to spend time with the Father. And Jesus basically had a choice. He could try to like run away from the crowd, ignore the crowd, dismiss the crowd, yell at the crowd. Uh, that's probably what I would have done, you know. But instead of moving away from the crowd, he moved towards the crowd. He has compassion for the crowd. So instead of trying to get away, he moved towards the crowd. He heals the sick and he does this miraculous work by feeding them. But here we see that he doesn't abandon his plan. He still sees the importance of getting away with his father, his heavenly father. And so he, he commands his disciples to go off into the boat. He dismisses the crowd and he goes and he prays and spends time with his heavenly father. You know, this was not just a one-time deal for Jesus. Uh, there's other passages that make the case that he did this. It seemed like it was a routine. It was a regular thing for Jesus to, to get away. And so there's an account, and we've, we talked about this previously in Matthew. I think it's Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus heals a leper, and he tells, he tells this man, you know what, let's just keep this healing to ourselves. You know, you can go off into the temple and make the proper uh, sacrifices um, but let's just keep this to ourselves. Well, of course it doesn't happen. The word spreads and the crowds just start surrounding Jesus again. And Jesus, of course, has compassion for them because he's healing them. But, but it's interesting how Luke describes the same event. So this is a different gospel, the gospel according to Luke. At the very end of that, he says in verse 16, so this is Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places, so that's plural, so this happened more than once, that he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. So this was a regular routine for Jesus. And this is a bit of a side note, you know, this is just the introduction to this narrative, but I think this is important for us to kind of pause and think about. If this was a regular routine for Jesus, 
I think this is a great example for us as well. That we need time in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the crowds and the work, we need to take time away. We need to get away from the, our, our routine, our lives, the distractions, the chaos, the struggles, the distractions, and spend time with our Heavenly Father. So the question for you is, is, do you make time for that? Do you make time for that? And if it gets interrupted, okay, address the issue. But do you make time to intentionally get away with the Lord and spend time with him? Friends, I think that is probably one of the greatest struggles we have as Christians today. With, with everything that is coming at us, I mean, we have, we are, we have access to so much and people have access to us, our time, our attention, our energy, like, like we've never had before. It just bombards us with, with those little phones that we have. And so I think now more than ever, we really need to, to work at that, to be intentional about that, because I think it's so important for us. So one, taking the time is half the battle. You know what I think is another struggle? And like I said, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think it's much needed. That the other battle or challenge is when we do make the time, what is our time with the Lord like? So I kind of, uh, I don't want to take too much time on this, but like I said, this is really important. I, I uh, equate this with sometimes um, my relationship with my wife. So in our lives, especially with five kids, especially when they were younger, I mean, it was all hands on deck. It was like 100% of attention and time and energy was just making sure that our children would not die. They would not have to go to the hospital for something, right? It was like all hands on deck here. And so time with one another uh, was difficult. But when we made intentions, you know, some time to get away, it was almost like we didn't know what to do. It's like we were away. We just have time with, for one another. And now we're kind of like, now what? <laughs> right? And so, and, and the thing is, is if, if it was just once in a great while, that's what it would be like. It'd be like, now what do we do with it? So half the battle is m making that time. The other half is engaging in a way where it is, it is good. It is interactive. That there's, that there's relationship building taking place. And so I'm not going to keep harping on this and, and go too off in this, but let me just say this. Both of those are much needed. So I would encourage you, whether if you're in a life group or in a small group, if you have some friends, to be talking about this. Oh, what are some ways that you can spend time away with the Lord, and what would that look like? How would you engage with the Lord in that way? If, if that is something that that strikes you, I would even encourage you to come to me, to, to reach out to me. I have a phone too. 
reach out to me, email, text, phone call, whatever it is. And let's have a discussion about that because I think this is so important. Jesus saw that it was vital for him to do this. We need to as well. All right, that's just scene one. Let me now jump to scene two. And this is a scene about chaos and fear that reigns, okay? Chaos and fear reigns. This is verses 24 through 27. And here we see that Matthew identifies some problems as the disciples go off into the boat ahead of Jesus, okay? So of course, of course, when the disciples get into the boat, into a boat of course, it's not going to be smooth sailing, right? So they get into this boat, and it's not going to be easy. The winds come, and of course, the winds do not go with them. The winds are against them, so now they're in the sea, and they are struggling, all right, now they do have fishermen with them, right? They, they're familiar with this. And the text doesn't tell us that they're in some immediate danger, that their lives are at stake here. But if you just put yourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment, here are disciples who follow Jesus into the wilderness. The crowds come and Jesus calls them to feed them. Right? So the disciples are, are doing a lot of work here. They had a long day. Jesus, of course, had a long day. But now Jesus is alone with his father, but he sends the disciples off. So the dis disciples have had a very long day. I'm sure they're tired. It's at night. Okay, so it's difficult to navigate. Now they're in the middle of the sea and they're struggling. And it's like, oh. Can it get any worse? Yeah, the winds come, and now we're just battling with the sea. And so they have to fight the wind and the waves, and we see in verse 25 that this is not their only problem. Because while they're out there having difficulty navigating, fighting the wind, and remember, it's at night, so it's pitch black. Remember, there's no light pollution, right? They don't have lights. They don't have spotlights. Okay, they don't have these big cities with, with these booming lights. It is, it is probably like, have you ever experienced going out into the wilderness and being out there at night? If, if the moon isn't full, and, and if you think about this, if there's a lot of wind, there's, it might be overcast. There's probably not a lot of light. So, I mean... And all of a sudden, they, they see this image coming towards them on the water. They're like, what in the world is going on in the middle of the sea? So the wind is the least of their problems now. Now there's something freaky going on. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Uh, the passage says is that they were terrified. They were, they, they actually cry out in fear. So, you know, I'd like to think of this as, you know, like, um, I don't know if you've ever, I, I've probably, my, my family does this to me. In fact, I think, I think we've taught Miki not to do this anymore, but I think our other kids, I'm thinking of maybe Aiden used to do this, where we would have like these competitions of scaring the daylights out of each other. And there would be times when they would like be hiding behind a door and I would swing the door open and there they are. And I scream in fright and it's not very manly, 
right? It's not a manly scream. It's not like, ah! It's like one of those high-pitched squeals, right? So you can imagine that these men are in this boat, and they, they see something that's like, this does not fit. There's something, and, and they scream out in fright, in fear. Okay, so, so little problem, wind. Big problem, there's something out there, and we don't know what it is. They think it's a ghost, And as terror consumes the disciples, Jesus' voice rings out. They hear his voice, and it says, Take heart, it is I, do not fear. Take heart, it is I, do not fear. This, this phrase de- deserves our attention. We need to think about this phrase for a minute. Because in this phrase, there are, number one, there's two commands in this phrase, right? The first one is to take heart or to take courage, right? So, so instead of running in terror or screaming in terror, it's, it's this aspect of actually facing it in some way. Take courage, stand up, and face, face this, and also do not be afraid, So he's in some ways trying to console them or to encourage them in some way. So there's two commands. Take heart, do not be afraid, but look what's in the middle. It's kind of like an Oreo, right? Okay. Look what's in the middle. And I think this is very important. It's the phrase, it is I. Now, the ESV version, the translation that we have in English, I don't think does this phrase justice because it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't perfectly translate it as I, it's actually just the phrase I am, which is ego eme in Greek. That's the phrase. So it's take heart, I am, don't be afraid. And this is a surprising statement that comes from the lips of Jesus. It, it hit, hints at the true nature of Jesus to his disciples, and I don't think they were unaware of what he was saying when he takes that phrase and he makes that phrase, I am. You see, there's another time when Jesus actually uses this phrase, ego eme, and it was when he was having a discussion with the Pharisees, and they start getting into the topic of Abraham, And at some point, this is in the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So he's going back to the time of Abraham, and he's assuming something about Abraham. He's telling them about something about Abraham. Abraham looked forward to this day when I would come. And this is how the Pharisees respond. They say to him, or the Jews, they say, you are not yet 50 years old and have and, and you've seen Abraham basically saying, you know what Abraham thinks and believes? Look at you. You're, you're just this young man. What would you know? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He uses that same phrase. Before Abraham. And this, this statement that he says before Abraham was, I am. 
You know what happens? You know how the Jews respond to that phrase? Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away from the temple. So why, why would they pick up stones to stone Jesus? Because Jesus was speaking blasphemy. He was declaring something about himself in that statement. Abraham was, I am. He's speaking something about himself that they're going, wait a minute. You are, you are making a statement that God makes. And you are not God. This is blasphemy. You need to die. Because if you go back to the book of Exodus, there's this time when Jesus or uh, Moses is encountering God and Moses asks them uh, this, the first time he encounters God and, and, and Moses asked, asked, who are you? Who is this God that I'm engaging with? And Moses and, and God responds back to Moses. I am the great. I am. I am who I am. And he uses that phrase, ergo ma. And this is significant. This is the great I am. That's how God describes himself. And Jesus is using that same phrase. So in these two commandments for courage and fearlessness is wrapped around it, Jesus hinting about his divine nature. Take courage, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. So when we find ourselves in the presence of the divine, the grip of fear begins to loosen its hold. Think about it. With, the, with those distractions, those things that take place that terrifies us, when we know, when we know that God is with us, fear begins to fall away. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, five says this way. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, helper. I will not fear when the Lord is with you, when he is your helper, do not fear. What can man do to me? So here's the question. Where do you struggle with fear? If you think through your life, just even think back through the day or through the week where you struggle with fear. And, and friends, we struggle with fear all the time. If you just stop and reflect for a moment of the way that you respond to things, you can see, whoa, wait a minute. There is there's some fear here about things. It could be fear of what other people think of you. Fear of what other people think of you. It may be fear of the future and what it may hold. It may be fear of failure, be fear of the unknown. So where do you need to hear these words in your own lives? Where do you need to hear these words? Take heart. I am. Do not fear. Now we see that Peter takes these words to heart. Peter takes these words to heart, and, and at this, um, and, and this brings us to our next scene, scene three, and this is the walk of faith. 
we see that Peter takes Jesus' words to heart and he is taking courage and battling fear. And, and we kind of see this by the statement that he makes. And, and it's a very interesting statement, by the way. In, in verse 28, he says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, if this really is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is a very confusing uh, thing here, this, what, how Jesus responds. I don't know what's going on through Peter's head, but, but think about this for a minute. Would you respond in this way? Because I wouldn't. If, if it was Jesus, I would be, okay, if it is you, Jesus, come on over to our boat, right? Come, come to us if it really is you. But Peter, no, no, if it really is you, tell me to come out to you. And I think that there's something there. There, there is some type of courage there. There's, there's something about Peter identifying who Jesus is in such a way where he is willing to take this step and it's actually a step of faith, right? That to walk on water? Peter, are you crazy? What is Peter thinking? Well, I think, I think there's something that, that Peter understands about Jesus. And, and, we can, and, and we can understand it if we go back to Matthew chapter 10. This is where Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go out and do the same kind of ministry that he's doing. So Jesus is going around preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel, but he's also healing the sick. He's, he's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. And then he turns to his disciples and he goes, now you do the same. Now imagine being the disciples at that time. They're like, wait, um, us doing these things. What in the world are you talking about? Listen, I can barely fish. <laughs> I, I gather taxes. I can't do this. Jesus says, no, no, no. Look at what he says in verse one, chapter 10, verse one. And he called to him his 12 disciples. And what does he do? He gives them authority. He passes on the authority that he has and he bestows it upon his disciples. Gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. He sends them out and that's exactly what the disciples do. The disciples experience these mighty works. They, they actually do these mighty works and it's by the authority of Jesus. So I think it kind of makes sense where Peter would say to Jesus, listen, if that is really you, command me, tell me to go out onto the water. Because I know by your authority, that can happen. If it's really you, by your authority, command me, and I can walk on water too. And Jesus, it's wild. Jesus says, okay, come. So there's faith there. But as Peter comes out onto the water, as he begins to walk, what happens? We see, we see that the chaos around Peter, the winds, you know, building up these waves, they begin to distract Peter. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He focuses on these problems 
and he begins to sink. So yes, bravo, Peter, good job of taking the step of faith. But then it's this call to continue in faith. And Peter gets distracted by the chaos around him. So the natural chaos around Peter snuffed out his faith in Christ. And, and I think this is a, is a wonderful picture of or a tie-in with uh, this parable that we read back in chapter 13. If you remember at the very beginning, it's the sower with these soils, and uh, there's four different soils. And what it's talking about is these four soils represents the heart and the heart that receives the word, and the heart that receives the word responds, and and it's fruit that multiplies. And I think it's this picture of of receiving the word and faith and how how that is blessed, right? So in these soils, there's another soil. It's the third soil that receives the word, and but... In time, the worries and the cares of the word or of the world, excuse me, overwhelms them and the word gets lost. So in the same way, we see this transpire with Peter, right? He hears the word of the Lord. Do not fear. It is I, right? He responds. He hears the word of the Lord to the command to come He responds by faith, gets out, all of a sudden, same thing. The cares of the world, the chaos around him distracts him, and he begins to sink. He starts to doubt. So it's a a reflection of this parable that Jesus just taught a chapter ago. But here's the interesting thing about it. We see this little faith. In fact, Jesus says that it's little faith. It is doubt. But here's something that is very significant of what Peter does here. Because as he is sinking, as he is falling, he says these three short words, this very short phrase, short words, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. That short little phrase is powerful. Because I want you guys to understand this, that that little phrase we see here for Peter is enough. Yes, it's little faith, but it's still faith. It's still faith. It may be as small as a mustard seed, but that little faith is enough. That short little phrase, Lord, save me. Friends, if it is enough for Peter that is sinking in water, it is enough for us as well. So I don't know where you are at right now with struggles and the turmoil of of the world and the challenges you face or the sin that you may struggle with. That short little phrase spoken out of the right kind of heart, a desperate heart, is enough. It was enough for Peter, 
It's enough for me. It's enough for you, wherever you're at. In desperation, that short little phrase is enough to save. So here's the thing. Do not allow the lies of the evil one, nor the cares of the world to choke out the promises of God. You see, that is the danger. It's, and it's not just this world. It's not just our, our own uh, head and in our mind and of, of the lies that we can say to ourselves. It's even the evil one that can speak lies to us, that can distract us. There's a book from, by C.S. Lewis um, called The Screwtape Letters, and, it, and it's a... It's a um, it's a picture of the temptations that human beings face. And it's kind of set up in this way where it's this, this senior demon, right, that has a lot of experience writing to his nephew, this younger demon that doesn't have a lot of experience. And this younger demon, his job is to really derail this guy by speaking lies to him. And, and, so, and, and this older demon is giving him pointers of what to do, okay? So they're on the other team, all right, and they're describing this. And so let me read this to you. So it's Professor Screwtape, he's the senior demon, uh, talking with this little demon, and it says, My dear worm Wormwood, I am delighted to hear that your patience, age, and profession make it possible, but by no means certain that he will be called up for military service. Now remember, that's, okay, it's, that looks normal on that screen. Okay, so let me give you some context. Uh, C.S. Lewis was writing this during the time of World War II. Okay, C.S. Lewis lived through World War II. So it, it's and this is in England. So I mean, this this means something here when he's talking about the military and and this person being called up into it. So, anyways, uh, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. So it doesn't matter which one it is. Let's distract this man by the unknown future of what may happen as he being called up into the military, whether he lives or he dies what can it, or be maimed, like what's going to happen. Let's distract this man with this way of thinking. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. Now, the enemy is God here, right? Barricade the mind against God to distract so that there's no connection there. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. So think about Peter. What is Peter doing? He is walking towards Jesus. He's trusting in Jesus. This is what he is doing. And all of a sudden, chaos around him distracts him. And now there's a barricade. We call it fear. We call it doubt. And he begins to sink. Friends, this is a normal thing for us. This is the danger in our own faith. And we need to be aware of it. You know, there's a hymn that, that points to this promise of God or who God is. 
It's on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That is so true in our lives. So the question is, is where do you often get distracted? What is it in your life that pulls your eyes away from Christ and following him? Because that, that can be a barrier that can cause you to sink. So Peter struggles with doubt, but responds in desperation. And those three short words are enough. All right. Let's look at scene four now. Well, okay, wait a minute. We got to, we got to, let, let me address this too, because this is really important. I don't want to miss this part um, because this is significant in the gospel of Matthew. Once Jesus, of course, responds to this cry, right? Pulls him out of the water. They get into the boat. Right when they hit the boat, the winds are calm. And how do the disciples respond to all this? They respond in worship and confession. Worship and confession. Because through this experience, they finally realize, they finally know this is truly the son of God. So remember, if you think back throughout the gospel, there is a question of who Jesus is, right? So remember the Pharisees, they say he's, he's the servant of Satan, right? He's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. He's He's the servant of Satan. There's, the crowd is confused. They're like, maybe he's the son of David. His hometown says he's the carpenter's son. Herod, which is the craziest one, thinks he's the resurrected John the Baptist. Who is this man? And all of a sudden, it becomes clear to the disciples, the disciples whom Jesus has called. The disciples who Jesus has revealed these truths, the disciples who these are the only ones that are experiencing this miracle now, they finally come to the conclusion, this must be the son of God. And their response is to worship, is to worship him. And I think that's important for us to understand because now through the rest of the gospel, we're going to see this distinction between how others view Jesus and how the disciples view Jesus. And, and once we understand and how it applies to us today is once we understand who Jesus is, that should be our response as well, is to follow him, to worship him, and confess who he truly is. All right, that's scene three. Here's scene number four, that, that uh, there are people who respond to Jesus by faith. There's another group, a people who respond to Jesus by faith. So in this scene, we see a significant difference in the way Jesus is received. So when Jesus, remember again, when he was back at home, he wasn't received very well, right? He's the carpenter's son. When the disciples initially see Jesus walking on the water, how do they respond? It's, wait a minute, we don't know who this is. This, this, this is a ghost, right? So they, at that moment, weren't sure. But notice how these people 
from Gennesaret receive Jesus. Verses 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they, be, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, so they instantly recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all the sick. And then they said this, they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Because uh, they brought the sick around. They said, you know what? You don't have to lay hands on us. You don't have to pray over us. All we need to do is just, just touch the garment and we know we will be healed. Okay, so let me equate this this story with another story that took place earlier in the gospel of Matthew. And that is the story of the centurion who comes to Jesus. He's got a sick servant. I think he's paralyzed. And he comes to Jesus and he goes, listen, I have the servant and he needs to be healed. Would you heal him? And Jesus says, sure, show me the way. I'll follow you to your home. And the centurion says, you don't need to come with me. We don't need to go there. Just say the word. And the centurion had this understanding about Jesus. It was very unique because he said, you know what? I'm a man of authority, and I know that you're a man of authority as well. So notice this, that the theme of authority comes up again in this. Jesus is a man of authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And you know how Jesus responds back to this? This is Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled and said to those that followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This, this kind of response back to Jesus about healing displayed the, the kind of faith that this man had in him and in his word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, in a similar way, I think these people who recognize who Jesus is has a similar kind of faith. This, this huge faith in such a way where they go, you know what, just, just pass by, just, just take a little walk and we will just touch the side of your robe, just grab some of your fabric and we know we'll be healed. Wow. This is astonishing faith. This is quite different than those who were in Jesus' hometown, isn't it? They questioned who Jesus was. And they had very little faith. In fact, they were offended. And actually, the text tells us, and Jesus goes, okay, well, then no mighty works for you. I'm out of here. Right? This is a little bit different than the disciples in Peter's kind of faith, right? Who it, it looks as though he has great faith. He steps out, but all of a sudden, psh, he falls in. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. That faith is enough. It is. But this is very different. Here are people who recognize Jesus and go, all you need to do is walk past. Let us just touch your robe and you and we will be healed. This is what great faith looks like. And so here's how I'd like to end for us this morning. 
What category do you fit in when it comes to faith? Is there absolutely no faith? Is there no recognition that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Or is there little faith? Yes, that little faith is enough. It can save. But I wonder if there is greater blessing for us when we have great faith. And so what can Jesus do in your life as you, as you take off, as you shut off all the things that hinder you, all those distractions, the sin that weighs you down, that you can fully keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. What kind of blessing, what kind of work can Jesus do? What kind of fruit can be produced if you keep your eyes on Jesus with great faith? And with that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we confess now that oftentimes, yes, we do have faith, but it is, it is small. We see the, the problems around us. We see uh, the challenges we have before us, the sin that weighs us down, and we focus so much on that we, that we don't realize that we serve a great, mighty God who promises if we call out to you that you would be faithful and save us and draw near to us and move in our lives. So Lord, my prayer that this morning that we would take steps of great faith, trusting in your promises. Lord, you do give us commands. It may not be a, a literal command of taking a step outside of a boat to walk on water, but in your word, you do give us commands. I pray that we would follow them in faith and, and then in that, look for the ways that you would work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.